If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I pray that you do, turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, and we will begin in verse 28. John 18, 28. And as the slide has already showed you this morning, we are looking at the road to redemption. And two weeks from now, we will sit here and we will celebrate that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. It is Easter and there is no more glorious day for the believer than to say to the world, to say to our sin, to say to death, where is your sting? Our Christ, our Savior reigns. But this morning we look at truth on trial. Truth on trial. And we look at Pilate's court in John chapter 18. And we begin early, early in the morning, the scriptures say in verse 28. About midnight to three o'clock, they had a shift, a night shift called the, the cock crow. And that was midnight to 3 a.m. And then they had a very early morning shift, pro, P-R-O-I. That would be the three o'clock to six o'clock shift. And it was very common in the ancient world in the Roman time that the procurator or the administrator of a territory would get up very, very early in the morning at three. And then they, they would knock off, they would terminate their work at 10 a.m. And so we see here very early in the morning or late at night, Christ presented to Pilate truth on trial. But the Bible does not only give us the time of this happening, but it gives us a territory. We see Pilate coming out of his palace, if you will, out of the praetorium. And the Jews come in and saying, well, try this man. And Pilate saying, well, what do you accuse him of? So the time is early in the morning. The territory is the praetorium. This is the scene that is set by Scripture with Jesus Christ presented. And with that, we pick up in verse 28 this morning. John chapter 18. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was very early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If it were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and you judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now let me just pause there and say, before they even had the trial, they already knew the outcome. Who cares if he's guilty or innocent? We want death. Crucify him. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke in verse 32, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. 
Therefore Pilate said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You have said rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone is of the truth, hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Let's pray, Father. We ask that as we read your word that you would open our eyes to spiritual things. That you would open our hearts to be radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that you would set fire to our feet and to our hands to do your will, to do your bidding, and to glorify you on earth as you are glorified in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Truth on trial. The first thing that we see here in this passage of Scripture is in verse 28. And these are the first characters that we see. Look at verse 28 with me. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas' house to the Praetorium. And so we ask, who are they? They led Jesus early in the morning. They themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Who is they? We find out that they are the group of men, most likely in this case, that have spent the night with Christ, that have been interrogating him throughout the early morning hours and through the night of the previous night. They are the bodyguards of the high priest. They are the religious leaders. They are the church people. They are your pastors and your deacons and your elders. They are those that were steeped in Scripture. They were the ones that bring Jesus to Pilate and say, you do with him what you think is right. And yet they don't say that, do they? They said, we want him killed, Pilate. And this is what we see in Scripture, that the gospel confronts the religious leaders of that day. And the gospel confronts us. The gospel often confronts and radically, I would say, assaults our spiritual, our religious, and our church justifications. Here we have they, a group of religious people, bringing Jesus and saying, do something with this man. And yet the shortcomings of religious justification is not simply a first century issue. You see, they didn't just struggle with church in the first century. We struggle with that now. And we should caution ourselves with this. As we near Easter, a grand time in the life of the church, the life of our church, the life of the world, that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we should caution ourselves if we are the religious people that we should not be so comfortable in our religion that we neglect what God has for us. They bring Jesus. They themselves do not go into the praetorium. You see, we need to understand this truth. We need to quit trying to earn what is freely given. We need to quit trying to earn what is freely given. You say, well, pastor, what, what are you talking about? You see, we cannot earn God's grace. And yet we have they, them, those people, steeped in religion, steeped in the word of God. If that's not a caution to any of us, nothing will be. 
They are steeped in and trying to be clean through their religious practice, and yet they have not received freely and openly the grace that God has bestowed on them. We cannot earn His grace, and we must caution ourselves that the grace of God is scandalous. It is unmerited, it is unwarranted, and it is undeserved, and it is free. And I know you are Americans, and I know one thing about Americans. We love free stuff. And yet, if we love the freedom of this country and we love things that are free, why do we struggle with the freedom that God offers us through his grace and his mercy? They bring him to Jesus, and yet the gospel confronts the religiosity. And the same is true in us But we must also see this first in in verse 28. Not only does the gospel confront us in our religious culture, but we should be cautioned that it's one thing to be close to Christ. It's another thing to know him personally. Look what's going on here in verse 28. They led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. It was early in the morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the... Passover. So what's going on here? We have the Jews are getting together and they're eating the Passover. And if you don't know what the Passover is, it's found in, in Exodus verses chapters 12, 11, and 10, where God has promised to deliver his people from Egypt. And he gives 10 plagues. And the last plague to Pharaoh and to the people is this. I'm going to kill every firstborn son. And if that was not a tragedy enough, Think about in our culture, the leaders that we have that are firstborns. God is wiping out generations of leaders. But God made a way. He said, if you would put the blood of the lamb on your door, you will be saved. And thousands of years later, God's people here are still remembering the salvation offered by the blood of the lamb. And we have they that are spending the night with Christ... And yet they are taking the Passover and they are doing everything in their life to eat the Passover lamb that gives them salvation. And they forget that right in front of them, the very man that they have spent the night interrogating is the same man that offers them salvation. And we are cautioning God's word this morning. It is one thing to be close to Christ physically. It is another thing to know him personally. It's one thing to eat the Passover. It's another thing to know the lamb. So I ask you this morning, have you made Christ your personal Lord and Savior? And you say, well, pastor, of course I have. I grew up in the church. You can eat the Passover and not know the lamb. Pastor, you don't understand. My dad built this church. You can eat the Passover and not know the lamb. Well, you don't understand the generations, the pastors, and the legacy of faith that's been handed down. But if you do not know the Passover lamb, you do not know salvation. And God's word cautions us. You can be close to Christ physically and not know him personally and intimately. You know, I'm reminded that, that we should be careful not to overcomplicate the gospel in our lives. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we are saved. And we say, well, is that all? 
It has to be more complicated. So you're saying I am saved eternally from my sins if I just believe and trust in Christ. You said his grace is free. Yes. So if I put my trust in Christ, then I will find salvation. Yes. Then why is it so difficult for us to say I have died to my sins and I am raised in new life? Why do we have an easier time eating the Passover and we struggle with looking and making the lamb our personal salvation. He is the lamb of God. And not only that, we see a deep irony here. Look at they, them people. And before we point fingers at them people, we is them. Right? So before we point fingers, I, couldn't, I can't believe they didn't get it. Oh, how often we do the same. Verse 28, they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium. Why? Lest they should be defiled. So we have a group of religious people here not wanting to go into the Gentiles' house because they want to remain clean. And yet they have no issue putting an innocent man in the life and the hands of a Gentile wanting his death. So what does that remind us of? I think we should remember that we better be very careful about making molehills in our life mountains. We need to be very careful in our life with, with, with not struggling of, of staying clean. Right, we're going we're gonna to work for our salvation. We're going to work to remain clean and, and not defiled. And yet we miss the grace and mercy that is so freely offered us. The religious people are doing a dance to remain clean. They're worried about the molehills. They're worried about, we can't go in that house because we might not be able to eat the Passover. And if they would go into the house, they were unclean for one day. They could eat the Passover in the morning. So they're doing the religious dance. We don't want to be unclean, but you know what? The whole murder thing, not so bad. Right? We, we're not going to the Gentile's house, but we don't have any qualms about hooking up with the Gentile and letting him do our bidding. We must be very careful about dancing, religious dances on molehills and forget the mountain of sin that we stand upon. This is the reminder in Scripture. Oh, that the Lord would release us from the burden of the law. This trying, Lord, we want to be clean. Lord, let us, we can't go in that house. We can't do that. And God is saying, I sent you my son. Don't worry about being clean or defiled on the outside. I sent my son to save you and renew you and clean you from the inside. That we would know the scripture. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That the spirit of, of life in Jesus Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. There is freedom in Christ that we don't have to do these religious dances that we don't have to struggle and, and fight to remain clean. It is Christ that does that. And we see in verse 29, Pilate goes out to them and says, what accusations do you bring? What accusations do you bring? And with this announcement, Pilate begins the formal charge against Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, the, the Romans would depend on the accusers of starting the trial. And so the accuser always had to speak first. And so by Pilate coming out and saying, what accusation do you bring against this man? And them answering, the trial against Christ, the trial against truth has begun. 
And oh, how often do we see in our life that our sin leads us into a place of accusation against Jesus Christ. Notice the accusation here in verse 30. They answered him and said, well, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have brought him here. So what's the accusation? They don't have one. But if he were not an evildoer, and yet our sin leads us to confront Christ. Our sin leads us into a place where we become the accusers of Christ. This is our sin. This is what our sin does. Our sin makes us confront Christ face to face. And not just accusations. You know, sometimes we think that sin in our life makes us the victim. Or sometimes we say, well, Lord, you know, I just couldn't help it. Right? You know I'm weak. You know the flesh is strong. Lord, you know the place I work. You know the influence that I'm around. God, I, I just couldn't help it. And we want to make ourselves a victim. But Scripture doesn't give any allowance in our life for that. Actually, Scripture says the same thing against these men as against us, that we are in our lives holy terrorists, that we are slanderers, and that we are enemies of the cross of Jesus. This is what our sin does. Our sin brings accusation against God. Philippians 3 says this, For I have told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. They are focused on earthly things. This is what sin does in our life. It makes us bring accusation against God. And we can't play the victim. It makes us enemies of the cross. And I, I thank God that his son is in the ministry of reconciliation. That Jesus Christ makes those who are enemies, who I once was, he makes us alive in Jesus Christ if we believe. But may we not think for instance that our sin is a small matter. Our sin makes us holy terrorists against the name and the deity of God. And not only that, it makes us comfortable with who we are. It makes us comfortable with our sin. Look at verse 31. Sorry, verse 30. They answered and said to him, Jesus, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So what is the accusation? They didn't say he did evil. They said, well, if he weren't an evildoer. Basically they're saying, Pilate, you find out for yourself. So what is the accusation they bring against Jesus Christ? I believe it's this. They don't voice it. They don't vocalize it. But their accusation is this. He is threatening our power. He is threatening our comfort. And we don't like it. See, this is what the gospel does in our lives. The gospel challenges the status quo. The gospel challenges the status quo. The gospel challenges our sin. The gospel challenges us to grow in our faith. And, and I th I'm thankful for the picture that we had three adults this morning that we stood and you said, you know what? It's easier for us to sit in the pew and never be baptized. I put my faith in Christ. But they stood up this morning and said, you know what? The gospel doesn't let us sit there and do nothing. The gospel challenges the status quo. The gospel challenges our comfort zone. The gospel challenges our protectionism. That's what we want to do as people. We want to protect what we have. 
We say, Lord, I'll give you that. I'll let you save me from my sin, but this is mine. Lord, you're not going to have my power. You're not going to have my comfort. God, I can't sell everything and move to the mission field. God, I can't do this. You know I need this. And yet Christ says to us, if I am yours and you are mine, you have no more right to your life. And may God break our protectionism in our lives. And you say, well, pastor, I don't like to hear that. Good, that's the point. You know why? Because I don't like to hear it. I don't like to pray, God, show me where I'm comfortable and challenge that. Lord, show me where I'm idle. God, show me where I'm not growing in my faith. Because when I pray that prayer, here's what the Lord does. He shows me. And it, 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 I was reminded recently, I went to the doctor and they said, you look, everything looks great. I have one recommendation. You need to exercise. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. That's crazy. So I listened. I know I'm a man and I have a difficult time listening to doctors in the medical profession. So for the last two days, I ran. Not a lot, not a marathon. And I'm paying for it today. But you know why? I was comfortable. And stretching those physical muscles makes me uncomfortable. And how much more so when God stretches us spiritually. God challenges us. The gospel challenges us. It radically shapes and, and moves the status quo in our life. So I, I ask you, what are you protecting in your life today? What are we protecting in our church? What are we saying, Lord, I love this church, but don't you dare touch that. What a dangerous place it is to protect our power and our comfort. May the gospel radically shape that. Verse 33 we see Pilate coming back into the praetorium and called Jesus and said to him, Jesus, are you king of the Jews? And as he often does in scripture, Jesus has a way of answering our questions with a question. We see evidence of this in scripture, Matthew 15. The disciples of Jesus answered him and said, where are we going to get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? The 5,000 men plus. Lord, where are we going to get enough bread? And here's Jesus, his answer. How many loaves do you have? Well, not 5,000. And we know what Jesus did with that. In Matthew 21, Jesus, they said, do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. But make them be quiet. Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? In Mark 3, we, we see Jesus in the stern of the boat sleeping on a cushion. And a storm rolls up and the disciples woke him and they said, teacher, don't you care that we drown? And Jesus said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You see, Christ has a, a way of answering our questions with a question. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered Pilate, Are you speaking this for yourself? Or did others tell you concerning me? Jesus answers with what we call a, a brief sigh legace. You can use that in the Latin to, um, to really wow your coworkers tomorrow. It's a way of answering a question, affirmative in content, 
but reluctant or circumlocutory in the response. So Jesus is saying yes without saying yes. Why would, why would Christ do that? Because Jesus cannot simply answer a yes or no until he understands what Pilate is asking. I don't think Pilate's in a place yet where he's really wanting to know, Jesus, are you the king? He just wants to know, do they say you're the king? And you see, Christ has a way of answering our spiritual questions with a question. This is the power of the gospel. So what are you asking of God today? You know, we all ask questions of the Lord, don't we? I remember sharing my faith here in this area several months ago to a lady that, that she's been through it. If anyone had an excuse not to trust God, she had it. She's had men and men after men abuse her, assault her, revile her. And I just shared the gospel. I said, look, you have a heavenly father that is not like that. And her response was this. She said, I can't trust men. How could I trust God? And I prayed with her and I said, you know what? Thank you for your question. Because God hears that. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you struggle with trust because of what you've seen in your life. Maybe you're asking the question, well, God, we, this world is horrible. We see wars fighting and we see kids dying. We see people dying of hunger throughout the world. Lord, why is there suffering? Which has led some to say, you know what? Because of suffering, I don't believe in God. Some of you this morning might be saying, well, God, how could you take my wife? from me. God, how could you let my brother or sister pass? God, they were so young. Lord, how could you? God, how could you let me be afflicted with cancer or this? God, how could you do it? And before we say you can't ask any question of God, we, you need to know this about Christ. He is bigger than our questions. There's no question that I can ask that God says, you know, that's a great question, Josh. I've never thought of that. There's suffering in the world? Really? I'm glad you brought that to my attention. And we are doing a disservice to people as a church if we look at them and say, well, you can't question. Because we see in Scripture over and over again that when I question God in, in a heart of, of faith, true questions, not accusatory not challenging, but asking God, Lord, I don't understand that Jesus has a way of asking questions of my heart. And if you are here questioning God today, I would challenge you to listen to the questions he's also asking you. Because there are questions that I don't have an answer for as a pastor. That when I look out and I see kids dying because of hunger, because they don't have a speck of rice, that breaks my heart as a believer. When I see people walking through cancer and marriages breaking apart, when I see loved ones that have passed so early, that, that hurts me. I don't look at that and say, well, you know what? God's in control. We'll be better. We'll be okay. That we look at that and we say, God, we don't understand. But we know that you do. And God, this is where I trust. So if you are asking questions this morning, know that he hears your questions, but know that his questions are greater than ours. And may we listen to the questions that God is asking. He is not intimidated, but he uses questions to ask questions of our heart. You see, this is the question that Pilate is asking. He is asking Jesus, are you king? 
And Jesus says, are you speaking for yourself? And Pilate's answer is, am I a Jew? I think Pilate's real response is, Jesus, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know that me, Pilate, has the power to release you? And Jesus is saying, do you know that you have no power that is not given to you by my heavenly Father? But the question Jesus is asking of Pilate is the same question that we are asked today. It's not, it's not the question, is he a king or not? The question is, is he your king? This is the question that now Jesus confronts Pilate with. And we see in a world that is bombarding us with temporal, superficial questions and answers that only Christ can ask and answer questions of our heart. We live in a world that says, you are struggling, have a drink. We live in a world that says, you know what? You're lonely, well, find companionship and seek this relationship. This will gratify you. This will bring you happiness. We live in a world where if you're hungry, you can, you can go anywhere and eat in that moment. We live in a world that says, here's your question. Boom, here's a quick answer. And Jesus doesn't give us quick answers. He's answering questions of the heart. He's answering questions of eternity. Look at the, the answer that Jesus gives Pilate. Verse 36, Jesus answered him and said, my kingdom is not of this world. What's Jesus saying? That his kingdom trans transforms and transcends the world. Now this is what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying that he's inactive. Jesus is not saying that he's powerless. Rather, the opposite is true. Jesus is telling Pilate, my, my kingdom transcends the world. This is why Paul can say, I believe in the gospel, which is the power of Christ into salvation. For the believer that Jesus is power, that we should not be um, so disenfranchised that we forget that, that God is active. Look around the world. Look, look and see where God is working. And maybe you struggle this morning because you don't see God working in your life. Look around. See where God is working. Join him in his work. Because God is an active God. He desires to work in your life. But Jesus reminds us of this in his kingdom. He says in verse 36, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. My servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Are you a servant of the living God this morning? I think we see several things here in, in Jesus' answer for our life. One, he didn't say we're not in a war. We, we know the opposite is true. We, we see that our, our battle is not within flesh and blood. We see in Ephesians that we are to put on the armor of God. There is a war. Jesus doesn't say, well, I don't have fighters for me. You guys take a break. I got this. That will happen at the end in Revelation. There's going to be a big buildup for battle. Jesus is going to come on the scene and the war stops. No sword raised. The sword of scripture is the testimony of God. But I think that the enemy, the accuser, has several strategies. One, he wants us to forget that there is a war. He wants us to think, you know what, we have it pretty good. We're comfortable. 
They brought Jesus to the praetorium. They didn't want to be defiled. You're comfortable. Sit back, relax, church. Don't worry. Ignore the spiritual warfare around you. This is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying he does have fighters. The battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, but against authorities, but against world powers, but against darkness, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. There is a war, and the strategy of the enemy is to make us forget our wartime mentality. But I think there's another strategy. I think for those of us who want to fight for Christ, the devil wants us in the wrong fight. He wants us to fight about the wrong things. He wants us to fight about the molehills and forget the mountains. 2 Timothy 2, 3, Paul says this to Timothy, a young pastor, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, which means there probably are bad soldiers. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. Mm. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian life. He is to please the creator, and the recruiter. Are you fighting the wrong battles? The church is known for fighting foolish, foolish civilian battles. You know what? We're going to fight about what songs we sing in church. You know, if a song glorifies Christ, who cares if it's to a ukulele or the tambourine? Who cares? You know what? I just don't like the carpet color. Who cares? You know who does? Satan. Satan. He says, you know what, Pastor? If I can get you focused on that carpet, I know you're not focused on the souls of those who need Christ. And may we not get entangled in civilian affairs. And I want to end here this morning. Verse 37. Pilate said to Jesus, are you a king? Jesus answered and said, you have said rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. For this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, listen to this. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate didn't listen and he said to him, what is truth? Do you know the truth of Jesus Christ? Do you know the truth of Christ? We've seen this morning that you can eat the Passover and miss the lamb. Oh, that we would not be fooled. You see, Pilate thinks the question is about truth. But the reality this morning is Jesus is asking us, have you listened to the truth? Jesus is telling Pilate and he tells you and I, by opening up the word of God, we have seen and we have been demonstrated the truth of Jesus Christ. The truth that we are dead in our sin, all of us. And yet he has made us alive in Christ if we believe, if we trust, and if we put our faith in him. So I ask you this morning, do you know God? Do you know him? I believe the accuser that we've talked about this morning has several things against us. One, his plan is this, and we're going to out him this morning with the hope that many of you, if you are lost, that you would come to faith in Jesus Christ. The first plan of the accuser, and you know, the Bible says we have one that accuses you day and night before God. Have you seen Josh do this, God? Have you seen Brad? 
Did you see what Dan did? Did you see what he said? Lord, do you see his heart? I believe the first desire of the accuser is this. He wants you to feel close to God and not know him. The accuser wants you to be a they. The accuser wants you to come to church and, and be excited about the songs that we sing, to see the baptism and stand up and cheer and yet not put your faith in Christ. You see, the accuser doesn't care if you worship God as long as you don't know him. So we put, we put all of our energy in, in the warm and fuzzies, feeling close to God. We put our energy in this in worship experiences and the Satan is, is wringing his hands and saying, you know what? That's okay, just don't know God. Feel close to him, but don't know him. Eat the Passover, but don't know the lamb. If that's you today, I pray that the chains in your life and the scales in your eyes will be opened and that you would see and behold God face to face this morning. Have you put your trust in the one who offers you redemption? I believe there's a second accusation in this room this morning. I believe for those of you who have put your faith and trust in God, Satan wants you to feel like you're long gone. Satan has lost the battle for your soul. Now he wants you to feel apart from God. And maybe you're here. Maybe you say, Pastor, I know, I know I put my faith in God, but I just am struggling. I don't feel close. But just know this morning that just because you don't feel close doesn't mean you are not. That God is close to his children. And he desires an intimate, close relationship with you. To know, as scripture says, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So for those of you who do not believe, the question is not, is Jesus innocent? The question you have to answer is, are you guilty? And if you have put your faith in Christ, know that there is no scheme of hell. There is no height, nor depth, nor future, nor past nor sin, nor stumbling block that can keep you away from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Do not be fooled. To know God means that he is close. To know God means that we have a relationship with him. To know God means that he has broken our chains. That means that there is no condemnation. To know that now, not in the future, but now the spirit of Christ has set us free from the spirit of the law of sin and death. Thank God in Christ we are free. Let's pray. Father God.